Hello, you're listening to a special edition of the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan. David Scott is on assignment this week. We have what I'm certain will be a fascinating discussion lined up that will have relevance to everybody in their professional and even their personal lives. It's about staying cool under pressure. That's something important to people in business and life generally. And of course, as financial markets become more volatile, it's relevant there too. And I've had some conversations this year with people uh, in business uh, more broadly and also um, obviously in the financial industry about the stress levels starting to rise. Uh, um, and that's, uh, you know, with markets being volatile and even before we get to the impact of the unprecedented scrutiny that the Australian financial services uh, sector is facing through the Royal Commission. It is eight years this month uh, since what's now known as the QF32 incident. A Qantas flight from Singapore to Sydney with more than 400 people aboard and soon climbing, soon after climbing, there was a very significant engine failure. The pilot and the crew that day endured probably one of the most stressful environments you can imagine, uh, confronted with multiple systems failures and the stakes being higher than most of us would even like to imagine facing in our working lives. There are multiple lessons in leadership, composure, and decision-making from the events of that day. And to discuss some of what can be learned from the flight is the pilot from uh, QF32, Richard de Crepigny. Captain de Crepigny, welcome to the show. Thanks, Paul, for having me with you. Um, look, we're going to have a conversation about, you know, that'll cover crisis management, staying calm, mental capacity, uh, bias in our thinking. Um, but of course, the starting point is this extraordinary event that you were at the center of uh, eight years ago. Um, are the memories still as vivid as ever? They are. Those memories of traumatic events burn and etch into your mind. If you don't associate them with nice things, then they can remain as post-traumatic stress you know, type memories that will give you nightmares for your whole life. But if you can process these terrible events, the memories of them, and put them in association with some nice things, then this is what's happened with me. I can talk about QF32 and I can talk about it rationally because I've associated with the lessons learned from it and I've created friendships with people who are on the flight. So there's lots of good outcomes. So I, when I do give presentations about QF32, I inject myself back into the cockpit and it's real and it's live and it's, it's stressful to me. Um, but when that's finished, I can resume a normal life. Um, you published a book this year called Fly, which is, um, I think, the reason that I, I reached out to you and, and, and thought, look, this is a really interesting area and, um, that we should talk about because if we, talk, if we think about uh, people being in stressful situations, I, I think there are a few people in Australia who've um, uh, led and, and had to make decisions in a, in a situation as stressful uh, as this one. Um, but one of the taglines that I've seen associated with, with the book is um, uh, when you need to step up, what will you do? And I suppose the book is uh, a sort of uh, navigation uh, through decision making um, at a range of different uh, levels. So it's getting people conscious of um, how they think uh, in stressful situations, but also how they um, how they make decisions uh, and, and uh, step by step um, at different um, uh, at different times, and 
different approaches to de decision making. Um, I thought one of the things that you pointed out uh, is this uh, tool that you use called inverting the logic, uh, which I think uh, is one of my favorite parts of how you, um, and the most interesting parts uh, of how you were dealing with that initial uh, very stressful situation. So you'd heard one bang uh, and then a very larger second uh, uh, um, explosion, really. Um, uh, where there was clearly there was a fire in the engine, um, and uh, you realized you were dealing with something very, very serious. Um, you got to the point of inverting the logic. Maybe you can talk through uh, the moments that led up to that and then deciding to use this, uh, this technique you call inverting the logic. Okay, Paul, let me just backtrack a little bit. The event happened eight years ago. I wrote a book called QF32, which is what happened. And then I was speaking around the world to government agencies and corporations. And I, I, I went, met the most amazing men and women who were leading companies in the best of breed industries. And I learned, I then managed to associate the elements of resilience that helped us on QF32. I associated that with, with what they were doing. And, and Picard at Shell in Australia, she was doing safety at Shell better than the airlines does on the ground. And I went to the financial industries and I, I learned about these elements of resilience. Now, decision-making is one of the elements of resilience. Now, the elements are things that we are not born with. We have to learn all these elements, but the eight elements is knowledge and training, experience, teamwork, leadership, crisis management, decision-making, and risk. These are the eight elements of resilience that we apply during, in everyone in aviation applies them all the time. And we, we do it um, unconsciously and interactively with other people. But the elements of resili resilience can help people in their personal lives and corporations. Now, you refer to the decision-making. So decision-making is a trained skill. We have to learn to make decisions when we are startled by something that goes wrong. So there might be a, a lightning. If there's a lightning strike, we will know that there is thunder coming so we can keep calm and we'll make a decision that it's not dangerous. Now, a dog hasn't learned to make that association. So a dog can't make the decision to keep, stay calm when a lightning or the thunder uh, booms. So there are many ways to make decisions. And in the good times, pilots are relatively procedural. We have standard operating procedures, which is roles and tasks that we do when in a standard situation. And for many companies that are doing well-known, practiced and proven procedures, SOPs will suffice. When things go wrong, when we find the unexpected, when we're working with unknown unknowns, then we have to be creative and think novel solutions. So in the QF32, when my stress level got to the highest point, all the training that it had let me backtrack a little bit more. Aviation and a lot of industries, we have warnings that tell you when things go wrong. It's a glass half empty approach. So they'll tell us all the bad news and we hear the bad news all, all every morning when we wake up from the news and the radio. So that's a glass half full approach. And when you've got 4 million parts on an aircraft, you can be overloaded as I was with all the failures. But inverting the logic is where you, instead of looking at the failures, look at what you have. Instead of worrying about what you have lost, concentrate on what you have. 
And I had, um, I, I guess, instinctively learnt this from Gene Krantz. He was a mission controller at Houston. He's uh, during- one of my, uh, uh, I think, one of the most fascinating people in history. Um, so he was you know, one of the flight directors. Um, he was the he was the lead flight director at NASA during the whole during the Apollo program. He took over after the Apollo One fire, and I mentioned the story of the Apollo One and the Apollo was, I think, humanity's greatest ten years. The only time when there's been better human development and growth was during the World War One and Two. And I don't really want to use those. I don't ever want to go to war. So I don't want to talk about that too much. But Polo was a program of either a ten or a hundred billion dollars. I can't get an accurate um, determination. But it it gave humanity a kickstart. Now, when Apollo 13, if you remember, when the oxygen tank exploded, the mission controllers at Houston were melting down. They had too many errors. They couldn't keep up with all the failures, just like QF32. So Gene Kranz yelled out, gentlemen, stop wondering about what's broken and focus on what's working. Now, when they did that, when they focus on what's working, they managed to find enough systems to keep three astronauts alive, and as we know, Apollo 13 got home. Apollo 13 is probably one of the greatest acts of resilience for mankind, and Gene Kranz was at the centre of that. I've learned, I've read the book, I know the story. So when my logic broke down, when my mental model, my situation awareness of the situation on QF32, when that collapsed, I really didn't have anything to fall back on. But then two things happened. I went for an Armstrong spiral, which I've written about in, the, in QF32, but I inverted the logic like Gene Kranz did. So I, I sort of did a junkyard wars, that TV program. We just needed enough wheels to keep the aircraft off the ground, enough wings to hold it up, enough brakes to stop us. When you look at what you have rather than what you have lost, now this is really important if you're disabled. Some, someone might say, isn't that terrible? You're, you've been an amputee, you've lost a leg. No, I've still got a good working leg. The fastest person on skis in the world is a one-legged um, downhill racer. So look at what you have, make the most of what you have, because everyone's gonna have different skills. And this is a great lesson for life. Everyone is different, focus on your strengths, and when things get too complex, invert the logic, focus on your strengths, and the stress will come down and you'll find a way out. And that's probably a natural thing for us as well. I mean, you know, there are optimistic people, there are pessimistic people, um, there are glass half full types and, 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 the, and the opposite. But look, um, it is probably pretty natural sometimes in a crisis to look at all of the things that are going wrong. Um, so this is a thought process that you're talking about, which is okay. Uh, this is a tool. We can, okay, a known tool, something that has been proven to work in other situations. Um, let's focus, turn it on its head. Let's focus on what have we got right. It's a tool and, to be creative and it's a tool to be used when you have no other ideas, when you've lost for ideas. Um, I think one of the interesting um, parts uh, of this is obviously, look, um, with an aircraft like this, and uh, as you outlined in the book, there are huge amounts of uh, procedure, procedural documentation. Uh, you call them ECAM, I think, uh, they're called. So there's all the checklists that you can go down through to see if you can resolve various warnings uh, that are that are coming up, etc. So, um, so there's following the process, right? Uh, but then there's a difference between that and making good decisions, right? So. 
So, and I think in crisis situations, and um, I want to be careful about the parallels I, I draw here, you know, because I, what I, you know, what I'm, I'm going to be very general in, in the parallels I draw, but there are a lot of problems in business that come from people saying, I followed the process. And that was the process that was given to me, uh, but yet there was a failure. Um, and it's clear in review that you, there could have been a decision made somewhere along the line um, that uh, would have uh, averted the, the situation, the bad situation that the person found themselves in. So can you talk through the difference between following, the importance of following the process? Because obviously in that cockpit, you've got a huge amount of process to follow if you want. Uh, but then there's the decisions you need to make. What's the difference? When everything is going normally, standard operating procedures work and they've developed over many years. It doesn't matter which whether home or your company, SOPs work in standard situations. But when the unexpected happens, when you're, when you're faced with an unknown unknown, something you've never seen before, something that you've not expected, you need to, first of all, remain calm. So you need, you need a procedure to get you through the first, first 30 seconds when the startle effect that comes from the amygdala in deep into your old brain says fight, flight or paralysis. Now, that may have worked to avoid a tiger in the, in the woods, but this doesn't work well when you're operating heavy or very complex technical equipment. So we certainly need a way to navigate to the first 30 seconds to prevent the startle effect. And then we need to logic our way through the situation. Now, there, it, there is no point following all the rules if you don't survive. And <laughs> in the Piper Alpha explosion, which was in the North Sea about 20 years ago, there are about 167 deaths because a lot of people during that fire on that oil platform just near Aberdeen, they followed the standard procedures and went to the assumed um, meeting point, which was in the accommodation wing. But that was right next to the fire. And so when there was an explosion, they all got killed. The people who survived Piper Alpha, and 167 people died. People who survived, used their own initiative, broke the rules mm -hmm. and went to the safer place. And the decision on QF32 whether to evacuate people down the slides or walk them down the stairs, probably half the pilots would disagree with what my decision was. It was made in concert with the other pilots and was a very technical decision. So this is, very, this is extremely important because you, got, you managed to stop the aircraft. Now, I will talk to you about the decision to land. Uh, I, I want to ask you about that. But when you did manage to stop the aircraft, you've got a very hot aircraft. Um, fuel pouring out of the wings, hot brakes. Now, people might assume or presume that the fuel is coming down over the hot brakes and it will catch fire, maybe. But you have to understand that the flame front of kerosene is 10 times slower than gasoline. Kerosene, to, to ignite kerosene, you'd have to almost have it boiling with an oxytorch before it will catch fire So in a, in a bucket. So these are different fuels you have. To survive in a technical environment, you must have, these are the elements of resilience, knowledge, training, and experience. So we're balancing up all these threats, calculating the risks, and we decided to keep them on board because very simply, they were safer on board than outside. There were so many risks and threats outside. If we had evacuated down the slides, I think there will be people who would not be here today. So it was a dynamic decision 
the general awareness was if it gets too difficult, get them off the airplane, evacuate. We made the decision to keep them on board. And I would say 10% of all the communication I get about QF32 are people saying what a great decision that was. So we didn't follow the rules. In fact, the rules have changed since QF32. People are saying evacuations are so dangerous. I had done research, 15% of people will go to hospital between 50 and 30% during an evacuation. They are so dangerous. So if you are going to commit people to evacuating, it should be a life-saving decision and not just one because there's a bit of uncertainty. Immediately before that, well, shortly before that, was the decision to, right, that we're going to try and put this thing on the ground. Um, obviously, um, you know, the, in, in conventional flight, the, the, the riskiest parts of flight are landing and takeoff. But this was a highly un- unconventional situation. Uh, the aircraft is not responding as it um, to, to some controls. I think you had limited roll control, is that correct? We had lost 65% of our roll control and we had three separate fuel imbalances out of limits. Fight, they're, they're fighting each other. Right, so some of the conventional methods that you would use to control an aircraft when it, you know, they're designed to fly on, on three engines, but that some of that those controls weren't available to you? They're designed like to take off on three engines. Um, if you have an engine failure, but that's accommodated for. Once we get airborne in a four-engine aircraft, we could reduce it down to two engines if we're light enough. Um, this is part of all the risk assessment that aircraft are designed to take. Um, the... Human brain is built to do one thing. It's there to anticipate. Anticipate, what are you gonna do in the next 10 seconds? Do you have to get out of where you are now and go to safety because there's a fire? Are you safe? Your brain predicts and calculates how you're going to stay alive to, to reproduce as a species. Um, this, is, this is the brain reduced Primal stuff. To, the, to, to the most evolutionary basic um, processes. So on the QF32, we had three fuel imbalances out of limits. We had lost 65% of our roll control. Now the ECAM that has 1300 checklists, it couldn't accommodate what happens in a lot of crises where we have complex systems which we don't understand. There could be black boxes. There could be things that we just didn't build or we don't understand. One complex system can take out another complex system and then those complex systems take out others. We can have an avalanche. It's it's a bit like the northeast blackout of 2003 where, where one power failure then took out electricity for the yes. whole east and north coast area of America. So complex systems taking out complex systems. And... The human brain can anticipate these things. The current computers generally can't. Mm. And so we had to anticipate. We did control checks. We we did a dress rehearsal of the aircraft before we landed it. This is something that was not done for an LL flight out of Amsterdam in about 1992, I think flight 1860. And um, it lost some flight controls. They came in and landed without doing control checks in the aircraft in rolled inverted and crashed into an apartment building. But we learn from all these incidents and and that's the history of aviation. We learn from them and we adjust. So I knew we had to do this control check. We did the control check. It proved the aircraft safe to land. And it was the most important thing that I think we did on on that flight because we had speed and stall warnings coming down the approach, which could startle a pilot 
if he wasn't expecting it. But we'd proven the airplane safe to fly. We knew it was safe to fly. <laughs> and so those speed and stall warnings, even though they were real and correct, we had proven the airplane safe. So in an emergency, sometimes you just have to think the worst case, chronic unease, always assume something's gonna go wrong, and then think up your defenses, think up the mitigating things that you could do to counter these threats if they happen. Through rehearsing, and I think you, you make it really clear in the book, one of the things you say about chronic unease is that it, is that it belongs in the home. It belongs um, everywhere. Yeah. Chronic unease. If you if you if you walk past a person with a, a sharp knife, you would point it away from that person or keep it above their head and away. So chronic unease. Chronic unease actually means when you do walk. My wife said to me a few weeks ago, "You wouldn't believe the thoughts when I walk past you with a sharp knife." Mm. And I said, "You thinking of stabbing me?" She said, "Well, yes." I said, "That's normal." Everyone does that because the chronic says this is a sharp knife and I must keep it away from my husband. Now, you're embarrassed by the thought. Maybe you think you, you might think you're thinking of stabbing them, but you're not. It's chronic unease. So chronic unease is, is used to keep a sharp knife away from other people. It's used to, to anticipate things before they happen. Um, and the thing is when you, as you explained in the book, as you get comfortable with living with chronic unease, if you, know, if you apply it as well, a positive, for, it is there to make you safer, make you more productive. And I suppose going to part of what the book is about is about making you basically more successful, more in control. Uh, and so on. Chronic unease, oh, sorry, resilience is surviving things that happen to you. So you need to identify all the threats. Now, if the management sits down and says to all the workers, um, tell me, tell me, tell me if you've got any problems, or in a surgery, for instance, a nurse generally won't tell the surgeons if they've made a mistake because they're they don't, maybe there's a command gradient or loss of face contingency here. So in a lot of industries, people will not manage upwards and tell the leader something's wrong. But if you have a pre-mortem, in other words, you have a meeting and the leader says, you know what, we're about to do this process, but let's assume it's failed. The building has fallen down. Now I want you all to tell me why that building has fallen down. Mm -hmm. That's a pre-mortem. And now you're inviting everyone to tell you their worst fears. You're bringing out people's chronic unease. Now, when you do that, you surface all the threats that you put into your threatened error management utility and you work out the risks and then you manage those risks. So um, pre-mortems, chronic unease, um, it's a fantastic asset to use in managing risk. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, I'm going to uh, ask uh, Richard about uh, some of the other tactics he uses for being prepared for various unexpected scenarios. You're listening to the Devils and Details podcast from Business Insider Australia. I'm Paul Colgan, and I'm here with Richard de Crepeny, the pilot of uh, Flight QF32, which was uh, eight years ago this month. Now, uh, Richard, you mentioned in the book uh, that sometimes in bed at night your wife will uh, notice you moving around. I thought this was um, sort of amusing uh, kind of a picture that you painted. But that she'll no notice you moving around at night in the dark but rehearsing physical movements that you'd make while flying a plane. So uh, hands on throttles, 
um, uh, hand on a, uh, on uh, on the flight controls and and, and feet on the rudder, etc. Um, now I thought this was um, you know it's a funny story, um, but there's an important uh, important point to it, isn't there? Well, it's very important, and in aviation we call this armchair flying. Although in this case I'm I'm in bed, but the first chapter of fly is about the neuroscience of the brain. So I analyze the brain, which is a hardware, the the mind, which is how it works, and there's a part of the brain. Uh, the brain can can think. If if you didn't have a cerebellum, you would have to think about walking every little bit, which muscle to pull, how to put your foot down, when to transfer weight. People who don't have a cerebellum, which is which is like an accelerator card in a computer or a graphics card, but the cerebellum is a is an accelerator card for the brain that manages coordination. So it coordinates all our limbs so that we can walk, we can talk, we can do habitual things. And so we muscle memory is building up these sequences in the cerebellum. So we learn to walk by crawling or by across the floor, then kneeling and then walking. And that's to build the skill in the cerebellum. So all these skills that we want to be fast, fluid, and natural and habitual, things that we can do without thinking, like driving a car. We can get in a car and maybe after 10 minutes we realise we don't remember how we were driving for the last 10 minutes, but somehow we did. Or when we, when we, when we surface the right conditions to the brain, the brain will drive the car to work, even unfortunately on a Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. So we build these habits. So if we accept this, then we train the skills to fly. We train the skills for the difficult things into the cerebellum. When I was flying helicopters and we went low flying, and sometimes we were extremely low flying, an engine failure, you have to be ready for it and, and respond instinctively. We would be flying along and the other pilot could say, practice and wind the throttle off and get, put you into a, an engine failure. You could be 50 feet off the ground. You have to be instinctive in, in lowering the collective and pulling the cyclic back to get the aircraft auto-rotating. Now that was an, it had to be an instinctive reaction. And so that was on helicopters. Now we don't do anything as stressful as that in, in the civil world. But if we have an engine failure on takeoff, we need to have trained procedures that become habitual that will, will come in automatically. It's a bit like when you're walking on an on a uneven surface and your ankle rolls, your ankle your body will correct the ankle and bring you back up. Most but of all the time. your mind is really, it, the feedback is so fast that you're not really aware of it. Your, your slow, mental, slow brain is not aware that your fast brain has actually brought you back up to balance before you realize it. So we need to build those skills for an engine failure. And the way we do it is just like Roger Federer playing tennis before every game or Tiger Woods practicing his putt. You practice these, the, the shots into your fast memory, into the cerebellum, so they can be recalled automatically and instinctively. So you, if you are startled by what goes wrong, these things will play out. The so, idea being you have more capacity to, to deal with the complexity. If, it is, if the complexity is more significant than the, the incident that you're dealing with, then you've got more mental capacity to, uh, to, the, to deal the, with it. The slow brain cannot multitask. You can only do one thing at a time. You can only think of one thing at a time. But 
when you have the cerebellum doing all the movements like hitting a tennis ball or, or we're managing the foot movements when there's an engine failure, managing the rudder or the brakes when there's an engine failure, you, that can be automatic like driving a car and your slow mind could be thinking about in Roger Federer, the game plan, or Tiger Woods mm. thinking about how many strokes to do. You're not thinking about the activity, you're thinking about the whole plan. Now that's what we do. We practice in bed these movements to create muscle memory in the cerebellum. And so when these things go wrong, our body just reconfigures naturally and we can remain calm and reason through the process. It's a fascinating, uh, fascinating. I do remember it reminded me of a documentary I saw uh, a few years ago. I can't remember the documentary now, but it was a, there was part of it was there was a test pilot who was about to take a, uh, a, a fighter uh, up in, uh, through a, um, a series of very testing maneuvers, and he was talking to um, uh, a colleague down on the ground uh, before the flight, and he spoke for about thirty seconds with his eyes closed, and he had both of his hands out in front of him, and one was on the throttle, and one was on an imaginary throttle, and the other was on an imaginary uh, control column, and he was talking about uh, acceleration, speed, brake application, you know. So I then I'll uh, ascend to. 10,000 uh, at this speed, you know, at 700 knots, or we'll turn it at this level, roll, this degree of roll. Uh, and this went on and on for 30 seconds. I said, how does this guy know all of this? Uh, he obviously was extremely well practiced at being able to rehearse all of this stuff in his head and just kind of say it as a, in a stream of consciousness, uh, because uh, it, it, it's, to that point, he's got exactly what he's going to do uh, prepared in his head when it all goes right. So that, because the, the point of the flight was to find out if anything goes wrong. Um, and I think the application of it is really interesting to all sorts of different areas of uh, life because if you're more prepared for various scenarios, thinking through how is this, how am I going to respond? Maybe not just in a physical way, but in an emotional way, um, in uh, what, what other procedures am I going to start following if, scenario X or scenario Y arrives, um, then you at least you've got something, you've got a, a base level of control. That's right. But at home, you, you might put your phone always in the same place near the bed. So in your sleep, you can grab your phone oh, quickly. You this is muscle memory. I haven't seen the movie, but Neil Armstrong in, in, in The First Man, if, if they show it, on Gemini 8, it started rolling uncontrollably, one revolution per second. Right, yeah. But Neil knew, he knew, knew that capsule so well, he knew where to throw up his arm. If he closed his eyes, his arm would go up. This is muscle memory in the cerebellum, and he knew where that switch was and he activated it. So pilots in, in my airline, we close our eyes in the cockpit and I say, now where's the ditch button we have to ditch quickly? Where are the jettison buttons? Where are the critical buttons that you just have to get so fast? And um, we can do that with our eyes closed. Now, you cl why do you close your eyes? close your eyes because you have so little excess mental space that all the we have four million nerves coming into our brain that are processed and we can't be aware of all of it you're not aware of your toe till i tell you you're not aware of your breathing rate till i mention it but the brain only surfaces the um exceptions and it says something's not right i need to tell you about this so that's the only way the brain can keep 
calm and run on 20 watts of energy when it should be running on megawatts if it was monitoring 4 million sensors. So when you have to multiply a number or do something complex or you have to do fine work or you have to think about something which is complex, you shut your eyes to stop the visual inputs to shut down part of your brain so now it focuses. You're reducing your mental model from the visual side to increase the mental model on the calculating side. If you're driving a car, and I don't recommend you try this on a road, um, ask someone while they're driving, multiply 23 times 17. <laughs> and and you, they will either they will want to close their eyes, which they won't, they shouldn't, or they'll say, I need to pull over, or do you know what, I just can't, I need to do it later. <laughs> so any, any distraction, sight, sound, taste, kids in the back seat fighting, texting, texting on your phone takes the whole slow brain away from its job of monitoring you, you are, your you fast You really brain. are big on this uh, texting on the while driving. It, well, so. there's a, in the book I talk about the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is one yeah. of the biases we have. It's that your incompetence shields you from recognising your incompetence. Yeah. So 80% of people think that they're better than average drivers, which which is a, um, an automatic contradiction. So most people overrate their driving skills and they think they can text because they're a good driver and they don't understand the neuroscience, the texting tr takes away the whole monitoring system that we use in aviation to keep it safe, where people can say, hey, look, you're missing something or stop. So people are texting drive into cars that are stationary on the, on the highway in front because the fast brain in the cerebellum will drive the car quite well, but the slow brain that looks for exceptions doesn't detect that the car stopped in front. I think in the road accident statistics uh, in the last few years, there's been a slight uptick. And I think it's been interesting because for, for decades, uh, between advances in um, uh, uh, the safety of the vehicles, but also then um, public uh, awareness messages and then the reduction in um, like the increases in penalties for things like drink driving. Um, it's a combination of things. So the road toll has started to come down. But in recent years, uh, being flat, harder to get down and in some places rising again. Uh, and there's a suspicion that some of this is connected to smartphones. This all came about because of distractions. And, and so you must reduce distractions. Don't text. In surgeries, doctors, many, many surgeons play music. I mean, this is unheard of. Would pilots ever play music coming into land? No, it'll be profoundly dangerous. So we need to understand the neuroscience of the brain. We can't multitask and you must reduce the distractions. Um, well, um, I do have, um, you did manage to get me to think about my breathing rate and, uh, and my toe, um, but I'm gonna move on to another question. Um, learning to fail well and the just culture. Um, look, I think it's very relevant um, because um, in business and particularly as we've come through this period of this requirement for um, companies to become more agile and uh, one of the big sayings now in corporate leadership culture is it has to be okay to fail. Um, we, you know, we want our people to fail because we can be more successful if we fail, sort of, you know, this contradictory me messaging. Um, <clears throat> you know, embrace failure, fail fast. Um, your book outlines a very strong framework um, for, uh, and to my mind, the best uh, approach yet I've seen to, like, real, clear, 
practical advice that you can apply to actual life uh, where you can talk about getting okay with failure. Maybe you can talk us through it. Sure. The first assumption, the first truism is that failure is part of the human condition. Humans can't repeat things well. We will always make mistakes. And we need to just accept that. Now, humans can't be perfect, but teams can. We can have teams monitoring other humans and we can be perfect. But given that we are going to fail, we just have to accept it. But wouldn't we need to process failure? So we need to accept failures in the little things with the hope that we get the big things right, right? So how do we learn to, to accept failure in the little things? We need to accept that as if we are to survive in this world where we're changing careers every 20 years, the disruptions in big data, energy transport, th gene manipulation, um, and so many people robots, have a, you know, starting you a know, job that won't exist now. They won't exist. We're all going to get into the STEM areas. And, or if it's STEAM, then they'll be the, the arts will be translators for STEM. So we have to push ourselves up against the surf the edge of chaos. We have to be comfortable being uncomfortable, changing. And now we're going to make decisions. We're going to be falling over. We're going to make decisions. Some won't work, some will. So we have to accept the decisions will be wrong and we have to learn to fail well and fail fast. Fail well means identifying when it's not working, when our presumptions going in, if nothing else has changed, aren't met by what's happening at the outside. Now, if so if we're not getting the desired results for our plan, then maybe we should stop the plan and fail fast. Most there, there is a bias where we value losses twice as much as we value the gain of the same amount. So we will always try, we, we, we tend to high, fast, fire, slow, right? We need to <clears throat> perhaps invert that. And, and high, slow, fire fast. We need to fail fast and fail well. Fail well means when we fall over, we get back up again. Richard Branson said, if I failed, if I'm a good businessman, it's because I have failed many times and they are stepping stones to ultimate success. When you fail, analyze it, look for the factors, learn, adjust, and retry. Because this thing in, in aviation that you talk about, which is just culture, um, uh, and uh, it sounds incredibly important because when you, you, you talked about pre-mortems before, uh, but you also talk about uh, post-mortem uh, debriefing with um, your team and crew afterwards um, to talk about what could we have done differently or if there were errors, etc. Can you talk through the process of how Just you discuss culture, those? first of all, is really hard. The, yeah. the only area that I know where there's just culture is in aviation and some mining companies. Um, it is profoundly difficult, and I have a just culture test to see if you could apply it into your yes, marriage. It's, it's and may only yes. and only two or three people out of all the people I've discussed it with have had been game to do it. In other words, aviation is doing with just culture what almost no one can do in their relationships. But if you want to be res resilient in aviation, as resilient in aviation is in your marriage, so half the marriages end in divorce. Last year, 50 people died in aviation out of four and a half billion passenger trips, right? Aviation is so profoundly safe because we're managing, we're doing the just culture. So just culture accepts there'll be mistakes. Ideally, we want to learn from our successes. We want to learn from our near misses and a near miss is something that goes wrong, but we get away with it. No one finds out. Not many people volunteer near misses because it embarrasses them. Now, so for most people, we learn when things go wrong and there's an accident. But 
there's probably 10,000 errors made for every one that ends up in an accident. Wouldn't it be great if we could learn from the near misses? Mm. So near miss, we accept people make mistakes. We accept they're gonna be all these near misses. Let's learn from it. So just culture stops us criminalizing honest human errors. When there's an error, we have to analyze to say, was it um, an honest mistake? And we all make honest mistakes, we're human. If it's increased risk, well, I decided not to wash my hands going, going into surgery because I thought I didn't need to. Well, he needs education. Or if it's reckless, a pilot turning up to go flying drunk, right? That's disciplinary action. So we need to ca classify the errors into those three categories. But before we blame the people, I mean, I can be critical of medicine. Um, the risk of dying from going into hospital, from a hospitalization, is the same risk of dying in 70,000 one-hour passenger flights. Now, that puts aviation medicine at op opposite ends of the resilience spectrum. A third of deaths because of, of medical errors and mistakes, right? But don't jump to the conclusion and blame the clinicians. Mm. Just culture also says we've got to find all the contributing factors. Look at the systems because the chances are the system's broken. Look at the procedures. Maybe they're wrong. And then all the clinicians in medicine work under those systems where, where there is almost no governance. Mm. The systems are – the medicine needs rebuilding from – from the top down. And there's their training as well, obviously goes into that, you know, con constant training, retraining, making- Certification, testing, um, building up, uh, you know, experience can be a curse. So there's a whole lot of things we need to bring in, in the, these elements of resilience. But a just culture is a way where we can have a trusting organization that when things go wrong, they won't set up the end user, the end person as a scapegoat to save the company brand, or and, and they won't change any procedures because that would acknowledge that something was wrong with the procedures. Now, it just culture says, let's look at the system first, then the procedures, then the final worker. And if it is the worker's fault, let's see if it's an honest mistake, increased risk, or reckless. Now, that then comes up with, a, with all these outcomes depending on all these different combinations. But what it means is, I'm cutting to the chase, when my manager in my airline comes to a meeting once a month to look for the computer alerts, so the computer will say what part of the aircraft has been exceeded, what, what's gone wrong, that's been an error, generally by the pilot. When they, some, when they look at those errors at the end of each month, my manager says, you know what? I know about that because a pilot reported it. In every case where there's been an exceedance, he has a report from the pilot because a pilot can self-report knowing that honest mistakes will not be punished, that you can learn from your near misses, you learn from your honest mistakes. And if it works really well, we might even learn from successes. But a just culture there is to allow people to report what's wrong so we can learn mm. and fix the little things so we never get to a big thing. Yeah, because, and I think, you know, in a lot of companies, again, I want to get this really, really general because, you know, aviation is in a class of its own in terms of um, the risk management and um, uh, the, um, you know, the stakes that are involved in it. But there are all sorts of companies that I think could benefit from, from like, how do we improve our processes and our performance and look after our people better? 
um, by you know, trying to learn from the honest mistakes and and the excess risk. Now, we have to be clear here. This mm. just culture comes from the top. Yeah. Culture is what people do when no one's watching. The culture is not – the leader doesn't set the culture. The leader is the culture. It's a leader's personality, his values and beliefs. That is a culture. So the leader has to breed the just culture. It's, it's, it's an informed culture. It's one of reporting where people are, are welcome to report, knowing that – that it's easy to report and they will be actioned. It's a learning culture so we, we the whole organisation learns from the reports we put in and it's flexible. So this is a culture set from the top down and you have, it builds trust. Trust takes years to build up. It can be lost in a day. In some parts of the world, aircraft have crashed. Maybe I'm not saying people have died. And the air and where there's a just culture, they will say, we are not going to blame the pilots. There are lessons to learn from this. We're going to protect the pilots and we'll learn from it so we don't suffer it again. Now, that is a truly great culture. I mean, fascinating discussion. I just want to wrap up. Um, you have a fascinating career. Um, you started off in the military um, and um, you spent a uh, bit of time in a very interesting roles in the military too. I think uh, uh, aide camp to the GD at one point. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, and then now civil aviation. Um, uh, do you still, after all these years, um, uh, look, I, I love aircraft. I, I have since I was a kid and I, I imagine, I, well, I know that I'm not alone. Um, uh, you know, just uh, the, the wonder at how these machines get into the air and stay there, um, even though, you know, people can talk to you about the physics and you can learn it and understand it and study it. Uh, it's still pretty amazing. Um, do you still love flying? Oh, I, I love flying for, for, for a few reasons. It's um, I used to love riding motorbikes, but I got a little bit bored. So flying airplanes is right. motorbikes with another dimension. You took a pretty so, big step up there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's just an, it's a, an airplane yeah. is just a flying lawnmower. It's um, and, and when you reverse the logic, an airplane is just uses the same cycle as a four-stroke engine. You know, jet engine is the same as a four-stroke <laughs> engine. Um, and and so these things are very similar. So, but I like the physical challenge of flying. And that can be very challenging when the weather's bad. The mental challenge of keeping calm when others around you are not. Um, the technology of, of being the leading edge technology, uh, always pushing the boundaries and having to absorb it and know it from the ground up, researching every nut and bolt, understanding it from the, from the ground up. So when you, do it, when you do invert the logic, it can make sense. And um, so high-tech, disruptive, um, it's, it's a lifetime of learning. And, and all of us, it's incumbent on all of us to accept we must persist with a lifetime of learning. The biggest factor for any of the young people listening to this podcast, the biggest factor to success is reading. And for the older people who are experienced, well, guess what? Experience can be a curse. And, and often there are meetings where people say, you know, I always did it this way and it always worked. And that's when people died. There was an aircraft accident at Essendon a few years ago and the pilot thought he didn't need to use checklists, but he was very experienced. So experience in aviation does not protect us. The number of flying hours isn't a protection. It's, it's the type of learning that you've done and you have to commit to a lifetime of learning Adapting and retrying, and that's the same for any profession. There, there was, a, there was, a, there is a part of it you talk about the experience bias, the drift to failure. Um, 
uh, and I think it's really interesting and it's very obvious in a whole lot of industries, but it's also um, uh, like basically frontline staff, um, say the, the excellent salesperson uh, gets promoted, gets a series of promotions and suddenly they're in a um, they're in charge of a very large, they're a senior executive in, a, in an organization with thousands of people. The classic example of this is uh, in the military where you've got a very uh, capable soldier or uh, in the police where you've got a very capable officer and they go through their series of promotions and all of a sudden they're in very big, powerful um, leadership roles with huge administrative responsibilities as well as leadership responsibilities yeah. and management accountability. Um, and they, their, their capability um, is... Um, uh, I mean, it's the Peter principle, you know, you rise to the level of your own incompetence um, in some ways. Um, but they are that they're that they're different skills that not necessarily somebody's experience always points to them being the most capable in a particular situation. I think it's an interesting point that you highlight with that. Um, I, I think we often promote people to their next level of incompetence so we don't prepare them managers manage and leaders lead. There's a big difference. So we just can't have managers going into leadership positions without the right sort of training. And it is a, a fundamental difference. Um, and and the other thing is just getting back to the experience that the technology life cycle means that anything that we have done well has a lifespan and the technology we're comfortable with today, talking into the equipment I'm talking in here, this will all become laggard and we're going to use something else. So the management and the leadership, particularly the leadership, needs to understand life is evolving, changing. Yeah. You need to disrupt yourself and keep control and not let others disrupt you and lose it. So the future is active learning, lifetime of learning and disrupt yourself. yourself. I didn't want to miss the opportunity to ask you a couple of really quick questions. Favourite aircraft to fly? Oh, 380. Oh, really? Airbus 3. Well, yeah. in, 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 in commercial aviation, the A380, because it's the most high-tech, biggest, uh, most glorious machine, it's wonderful and it's resilient. You know, it survived QF32. I, I, I just love the A380. The best aircraft in the military I flew was a Caribou. In, it, it's oddly, the slower the aircraft, the more fun it is. The fighter aircraft and bomber aircraft were held to the fighter bases with an umbilical cord, so you didn't have much freedom. With the slower, um, lower aircraft like choppers and caribous, we had six months after I, after I finished conversion, I was in command, and we'd go away for a month with the special forces, and we, we authorised ourselves. We had to use common sense. We had to manage risk. And we were given amazing responsibility. So funnily, it's the oldest, lowest and slowest, slowest in the yeah. military. <laughs> yeah. um, and your favourite destinations to fly into? Um, I'm sure a lot of our... Uh, of our um, are there any airports in particular that are... Um, particularly spectacular or difficult to... Uh, to Hong Kong into. used to be spectacular. Uh, London is beautiful in the morning when the sun comes up and we fly right over, right over the top of London. That is one of the most beautiful approaches. Sydney is always a beautiful approach. It's, it's a wonderful city. We are spoiled in Australia. Perth is wonderful. I, I, look, they're all different. They're all wonderful and they all throw up their own challenges and, and the life of a pilot is, is forever changing. It's one of continual development. You, the minute you think you know it all is a second before you make a big mistake. So you can't be, you have to be confident, but never overconfident. And so everything is a challenge and it's great fun. 
Um, I've got, I have to ask you one more question. The one thing, very briefly, that you wish more people knew uh, about uh, the aviation industry. Or the more people understood about the aviation industry. They need to understand why we can fly four and a half billion people last year and only 50 died. That is profoundly safe, right? So 30,000 Americans committed suicide last year, 30,000 died in cars, 30,000 um, were shot, 60,000 died from overdose of prescription drugs, 250,000 people drowned last year, 50 people died in four and a half billion seat miles where we're flying three quarters of the way into space in terms of pressure and we get all those people to destination safely and they it's safer than getting the car to the airport. This is not a mistake. It's not an accident and it's not luck. This started with the Wright brothers on the 17th December 1903 with the first flight. And just 115 years later, we've taken all this knowledge, we learn, adjust, we change, we have this just culture. And this is the result when we put the elements of resilience into our personal and corporate lives. It's not luck, it's hard work. I get tested seven times a year when my license, if I fail, my license stops, my pay drops. I don't know any other profession that is certified more than once. Most professions are never recertified. I'm always on guard. I've had four certifi certification checks in the last two months, right? It's stressful, it's hard work, but you know what? It's the most amazing safe profession on the planet, and I'm really proud to be in it. Uh, it's been a fascinating chat. Uh, uh, thank you so much for um, coming on the show. Um, the book Fly is uh, by Richard DeCrepany is available through Penguin. Uh, really excellent stocking filler for um, anybody who's in, uh, interested in aviation, the QF32 incident, but also leadership, resilience, management. Uh, yeah, and uh, it's very well written, uh, easy to read, so I can highly recommend it. So thanks very much, uh, Richard. Uh, really appreciate you coming in and speaking to us on Business Insider. Thanks, thanks, Paul. And just, just to reiterate, these lessons about resilience can be applied to your personal life as much as your corporate. So you'll survive the crises, but in the good times, you'll fly. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, the show is produced by Rick Salter. You can find us on the web at businessinsider.com.au. Uh, we're on Twitter at BIAUS. You can find the show on iTunes under Devils and Details or uh, under Devils and Details wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back with another episode later in the week. And don't forget, if you're still listening, November 27th, live at the Ivy, there's a, still a couple of dozen tickets left, I think. Um, go on to Humanitics uh, and search for Devils and Details, and hopefully we'll see you uh, there for some drinks, canapes, and a whole lot of talk about economics, finance, and business. I'm Paul Colgan. We'll catch you next time.